Okay, welcome to the Shrift. Um, I'm gonna. I'm here with uh, Richard Ordanker, and we are going to be discussing the parsha, <laughs> the parsha of Vayigash, which begins with uh, the moment when Jacob, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. When we hold a novel in our hands for the first time and flip through its pages, we often cannot help but wonder to ourselves, who was the magician who created this little universe? How did, for example, J.K. Rowling give birth to the world of Hogwarts while sitting in a cafe in Edinburgh sipping on a tea? When I sit in a cafe, for example, I am usually thinking about what I will cook for dinner that night not dreaming up literary sagas which will captivate millions. And yet, this idea that you have to be some kind of sorcerer to write fiction is, indeed, a myth. J.K. Rowling is human. George R.R. R. Martin is human. Homer is human. Even Kafka is human. What did they know which we do not, such that they can write addictive stories that will last into eternity while we can count ourselves lucky if that anecdote we tell at a cocktail party can garner a few laughs. We use the word artist to describe novelists and storytellers and playwrights. Are they really artists? Another word we might use instead is craftsman. The dirty secret of all storytellers is that time-honored techniques, principles, and indeed rules underlie all great stories. These ironclad rules are, to name just a few, show, don't tell, build tension, create conflict between characters, and never make things too easy for your protagonist. Follow these rules and you can concoct a story about as steadfastly as a chef can prepare a dish by combining the same old trusty ingredients together. The Torah, though a divine book, is nevertheless no stranger to the ironclad principles of effective storytelling. To better understand the storytelling techniques of the Torah, I have brought Richard Oredenker, professor of intellectual heritage at Temple University, onto the shrift. Richard is not only a humanities professor, but also a writer himself. He has published several nonfiction books on sports writing in America, as well as an array of short stories. He knows the craft and the struggles of writing. And he is here to take us back to perhaps the original teacher of the fundamentals of good storytelling, the Torah itself. Very happy to be here with him. So Been welcome to the to show. Be here too. Great. And well, is there anything you'd like to add to that biography that I left out, or? Well, the only thing I would add to it is that um, I I consider myself a, a struggling writer. Uh, I, I've not published the novel that I hope to publish. Uh, I haven't published the number of short stories I hope to get published. I might wind up being able to do this in my retirement since I'm leaving teaching after this semester in the fall of 22. But I've often said that 
uh, whether you're a successful writer or an unsuccessful writer, if you write, you're still a writer. And you can talk about writing in the same way successful writers talk about it or any, um, anyone else who writes talks about writing. Uh, and in terms of uh, writers being self-absorbed, <laughs> uh, you think of someone like John Cheever, for instance, uh, who, whose self-absorption led to sort of family dysfunction. Uh, unsuccessful writers go through that too. <laughs> You know, when they're writing, their their families are sort of on the back burner, and that's hard on some families. I, I was never totally that way, but I can remember, you know, writing and running into the hours, and I and I would wonder, I wonder what my family's doing, I wonder where they are, uh, because you become so involved and so engrossed in your writing, so uh, successful or unsuccessful or whatever hack or or professional you, you writers are writers and they can they they struggle with the craft they deal with the craft and they can talk about it the other night for example i was watching seinfeld an american television series from the 90s widely considered to be one of the greatest of all time. Seinfeld, of course, follows all of the laws of storytelling. In this particular episode, entitled The Red Dot, there was one scene in which George, Elaine, and Jerry all had to hide under a desk in George's office while Elaine's drunken ex-boyfriend stumbled around the office looking for them. Aha, I thought, the classic hiding under the table storytelling trick. In that moment, I knew I was witnessing good, time-honored storytelling. Whenever you can get your characters to hide under something while their adversary fuddles around in the same room, you know that your story is flowing. In Moliere's Tartuffe, the charlatan Tartuffe attempts to seduce Elmira while her husband, Orgun, hides beneath the table. In Act 3, Scene 4 of Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark speaks with his mother Gertrude while Polonius waits behind the curtain and eavesdrops. Were Larry David and Moliere and Shakespeare artistic geniuses to have crafted these scenes? No. They simply learned along the way that if you want to tell a good story, get character A to hide behind something while character B strides around the room in total ignorance. Nowhere is the brilliant storytelling of the Torah more showcased than in the Parsha of Vayigash. In this story, brothers meet each other again over a decade after their last encounter. Their previous encounter, however, can be described as nothing less than an unsuccessful murder scene. Jealous of their younger brother, Joseph, the ten half-brothers seized him, threw him into a pit, and left him there to die. Many years later, their paths cross again. This time, Joseph is the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, and the brothers come to him begging for food. Joseph recognizes his brethren, but they would never dream that this magnate is their little brother they'd try to destroy in their younger years. All of the pieces are in place for world-class storytelling filled with tension, drama, and surprises.
Scene 2, The Shrift. Interview 11 with Richard Ordenker, professor at Temple University. Vayigash. So you're strugg- you said you struggled, I guess, with time and discipline. Um, what about just in terms of the craft? Was that also a struggle for you, like it, sitting in front of the blank page, or it, it was a struggle I loved, okay, and I still love. Yeah. Um, it, it's you know you're you're it, it's a it's a problem, you know you're you 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 create a problem for yourself. How am I going to make this story work? Uh, what do I have to do to make this character more believable? Uh, and some of it came very easy to me, mm. and I, I I loved I loved doing that. I loved struggling with with figuring those problems out. And I would put stuff away for months and months, and I come back to it, and I would read stuff, and I would say, you know, this is really good. How can I? How am I not getting this stuff published? I mean, I think yeah. this is really good. What am I missing? Or uh, because you send stuff out, you're not always going to get feedback from the people who reject it. And even if you get it accepted, I, I, I just got an acceptance letter. I never got any real uh, comments on what made it good or why they liked it or whatever. They just accepted it and they published it. Uh, so that part of the struggle I really enjoyed. And what I regretted was not being able to be able to do that for my, you know, in my life. But if I had done that, I wouldn't have had my, would have married my wife. I wouldn't have had my kids. Uh, a lot of things I would have not had, I think, knowing the person that I am, if I had just devoted my life to that. Uh, well, I find that very um, inspirational, you might say, that you love the struggle of writing. To me, that's a sign of a, a real writer. I think, I, was, I think I'm the opposite. I actually don't particularly enjoy that struggle. I find it very... I mean, I, I'm happy to have accomplished... Uh, if I write something good, I'm happy with that. But mm-hmm. in terms of, like you said, trying to sharpen your characters, making them more believable, more um, complex, uh, maybe you can say a little bit more about what you enjoy about about the like why you enjoy uh, what you enjoy about about that about the process. The, the thing I enjoy most about that particular process is what comes out of my head that I didn't know was there. I, I just, you know, I'll put something on the page and I'll, I'll just say, how, where was that in, in, my, in my head? Because if it's something biographical, I can, I can locate it. But if it's a turn of a phrase or if it's a, you know a character or if it's a just a story idea uh, one story I published for instance was about a man who uh, even as a young boy things would would stick to him I mean whether it was dirt or lint or bird droppings or um, paper and after a while more and more things just fall on this guy and stick to this guy and eventually another person sticks to this guy, attaches himself to this guy and sort of lives on this guy as a kind of parasite. And, you know, maybe that came from reading Kafka. I don't know. Sounds very Kafka-esque. Uh, 
I, I'd read a story by Roland Tope, a novel by Roland Topor called Joko, Jocko's Anniversary, in which he, he kind of carries around people on his back all the time. And I know maybe there was a germ of the idea on, in that. But the story itself and what came out of that story was, you know, where, where did I come up with this? Where did I find this? You know, where, uh, where did that all come from? So that, that's the part that I like most about it is, is seeing, you know, what, what this mind of mine has to say. And, uh, you know, what are, the, what are the words that I found to do that? You know, where do they come from? How did I was able to put those words together in that way? If someone told you, okay, Richard, we're going to pay you to go to the beach for a month and all you have to do is write, but at the end you have to have, you know... A really good short story for us how would you would you be excited about that would you be intimidated oh no i'd do that in a second i, I yeah <laughs> I, and, and again you know that was a part of the lack of discipline on my part to actually go out and find ways of doing that you know pl- applying for grants and things like that i eventually did but i wound but they it turned out the, the grants that i did get from the neh were either teaching grants or they were for studying you know literary criticism hmm. i see yeah Okay, well, uh, I think that's so cool that you have that passion, and I would, I definitely think you should try to make it happen if you still can. <laughs> well, at, at, at nearing seventy, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> and the time's not? running out. So, but but I do I do of I do have all my papers, and I'll leave them somewhere. So maybe somebody will do something with them one day if I'm not around. <laughs> okay, well, every all you listeners uh, make note of that. <laughs> And, uh, okay, so I'd like to now talk about the Joseph story, and hopefully we can, it'll allow us to share more about what it means to be a struggling writer uh, within, in terms of when we look at the Joseph story as literature, and the technique, techniques that it uses as, as, a, as, a, as a story, mm-hmm. storytelling techniques. Let me just give a little bit of a summary background just so it's fresh in our minds in terms of the major plot elements of the Joseph story. Vaigash recounts the dramatic reuniting of brothers. Who are these brothers? One of them is named Joseph. When he was 17 years old, his other 11 brothers, save one, more or less tried to murder him by throwing him into a pit filled with slithering snakes. Joseph, however, was discovered in the pit by traveling merchants who sold him as a servant to an Egyptian aristocrat. Through careful maneuvering, stealth, moral probity, and a bit of old-fashioned luck, Joseph rose from the dungeon to become, yes, the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Now a young man of 30, Joseph sits just beside the Egyptian throne and is the one largely running the country, a Woolsey or Bismarck of his time. Meanwhile, his 11 brothers back in the land of Israel believe Joseph is dead. When a famine descends upon the land, they travel back to Egypt to ask the pharaoh for food. There, they encounter Joseph. Immediately, Joseph recognizes his brothers 
and yet they do not recognize him. How could they, after all? Their brother does not speak Egyptian, and is not the Pharaoh's right-hand man. No, their brother died in a snake pit over a decade ago. Yet, we as an audience know who is really behind the curtain, as it were. Joseph decides to test his brothers, to see whether they truly regret, you know, trying to kill him and all. So um, the first uh, major like uh, storytelling element that I see in this in this is the change of character uh, over time. As I've always understood in fiction, except, except for maybe modernism, the characters need to change throughout the story. Right? That's a, a major. Well, that's I think how a lot of fiction was thought to <laughs> thought to be taught or, or, or written but you know there are there are characters that never change at all I mean that's the problem with them they just right, never like Joseph K doesn't yeah. really change right they, they they're 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 who they are and they never Seinfeld. Right, exactly it's like a perfect example you know, yeah Seinfeld's who just never grow up you know they're just self-centered and that's so what do you think? think? So, um, well, I think that, okay, but in Joseph, the Joseph story, do you see change in the characters? Well, Joseph, definitely. Uh, and Jacob, too. I mean, you know, has changes, you know, especially after the, uh, um, you know, with the wrestling with the, uh, the angel from God. I mean... Uh, he becomes a very different person. He's he's not so much the trickster anymore. He's not the one who sort of puts the demands on uh, who will be his God and who will not be his God and, and realizes that he's, you know, the party of the second part, not the party of the first part in this contract with God. Uh, and Joseph matures in a way that the other brothers don't really, when you think about it. Um, he's He's become this this sort of what's he like a viceroy or a chancellor he's yeah. he's got he has equal powers to pharaoh i mean he doesn't i mean in a way he can do whatever he wants i mean pharaoh will have the final word if he doesn't like something pharaoh will, will be able to put an end to it but he's got a lot of power in yeah. in egypt which is extraordinary with coming from a 17 year old kid to uh how he rises and uh, you know he's 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 got a plan in mind for when he recognizes his brothers, and I'm not sure why the brothers don't recognize Joseph. There are a lot there are a lot of things in this story that <laughs> I think. The, it, it, well, I I got to take a step back here. Is that I think in some ways this story is a redacted mess. There's there's a lot of problems in this. Story. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean the the brothers even when the the story of throwing Jacob in the pit is they don't get the story right. I mean, it's, it's two strands. It's two different stories going on there. Whether well, they want to kill him or no, they just want to leave him there to, to you know, leave him in the pit. Either way, they're going to abandon him. And abandon him. But um, Well, I think they just don't... They're still deciding and then other people come and yeah, take they him. Can't, yeah, right. That comes into the story too where they... Yeah. Uh, uh, but there, there's a lot of... Um, uh, just, just a lot of problems in the story. I mean, even to, there's even a sense of whether, 
you know, how old is Joseph? Is 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 where, where's Rachel? Has she died? It's, obviously, she's died, but there's there's a little error in the story that maybe Benjamin is not yet born when Joseph is thrown into the pit. I mean, there's just a little element there. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense that that would not have happened, but that goes on in the story. Um, but he, but he never talks about his mother, by the way. Joseph never says anything about Rachel. He never mentions well, I her. I think she has to have been... She, she died, but she, he never... And he yeah, would have been about, I guess, six or seven at the time that she died. But Yeah. Uh, or maybe older. I, I, can't, I don't know. I mean, the, gene, the, the years don't make a whole lot of sense sometimes. But uh, there's, there's a lot of problems in this story uh, in terms of those kinds of redactions that are going on. Uh, a lot of hands have written these stories, and they've, they've come from a lot of different places, I think, too. I, I don't think these patriarchal stories were ever connected. I think they were separate stories, and some writer put them all together. Okay, so... That's not, that's not an original theory. That's in a theory that's been around, but I think I, I kind of buy that one. And I think this Joseph story probably was a very different story, and, and here you could attach, attach it on to this other story of Jacob, and um, have, have a whole separate story of a, of a different, you know, different mothers and two brothers and then one mother and or then, uh, the, what are they, handmaidens or something who, who give birth for Leah, who, you know, after she can't give birth anymore. Okay, just um, well, a lot I want to respond to. Uh, first, just so our listeners know, um, some people believe that the Torah was written by Moses, all that there are no separate authors. So I think we have to uh, keep in mind that that's also the way that many people uh, view the Torah, but then of course uh, others believe that it was written by many authors and... Well, you have to believe Moses wrote his own death into the story, and but there's, there's a lot of reasons why that's not true, but... Uh, Just so people know that yeah. it's... Uh, that your uh, view of the authorship is is not what everybody no thinks. of course not yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but leaving but of course you are welcome to uh, I mean you're entitled to your own your own views. <laughs> is a bit complex, but stay with me. One of the brothers, whose name is Benjamin, does not come with the other ten down to Egypt. He stays back in Israel with his father, Jacob. He is the youngest son, and the only son whom Jacob has left from his deceased wife, Rachel, his most beloved wife. Of course, Rachel's other son, Joseph, is also alive, but Jacob does not know that. Joseph, in his cleverness, asked the ten brothers if they have another brother back in Israel. Indeed we do, they answer. Well, why is he not with you? Joseph asks. How do I know that you are not spies? To prove that you are not spies and you genuinely need my Egyptian grain, go back to Israel, retrieve your youngest brother, and then come back to Egypt. Then you'll get your grain. The brothers head back to Israel. 
They explain there to their father Jacob that if they want the grain, they need to return to Egypt with Benjamin as proof that they are not spies. Why did you tell them you had another brother? Jacob cries. I cannot let Benjamin go down to Egypt. He's my youngest son, and he's the only one I still have left from Rachel. And so Jacob refuses, but the hunger in the land worsens, and Jacob at last agrees to let Benjamin go down. The brothers appear again before Joseph in Egypt. They continue to think that Joseph is an Egyptian viceroy rather than their long-lost, once-murdered brother. Joseph fills their sacks with grain and tells them to return to Israel. However, in Benjamin's sack, he puts a silver cup. As the brothers are journeying back to Israel, Joseph orders his guards to chase after them and search their sacks. When they see the silver cup in Benjamin's sack, they arrest him and haul all of the 11 brothers back to Egypt. Now is the hour of truth. Will the brothers betray Benjamin as they betrayed Joseph over a decade ago? Or have they learned from their past? Joseph informs the brothers that Benjamin will be put into the dungeon for stealing the cup. In response thereto, and in the story's climax, the fourth brother, Judah, approaches Joseph and begs forgiveness. He explains how his father Jacob has already lost one son, Joseph, and that if he loses Benjamin as well, he will not survive the sorrow. Judah cries, For how can I go back to my father unless the boy is with me? Let me be not witness to the woe that would overtake my father. Finally, Judah pleads with Joseph to take him, Judah, instead, and to let Benjamin return back to his father. When Joseph sees this contrition from Judah, when he sees that Judah is willing to sacrifice his own life for that of his brother, he, Joseph, breaks down. He begins to speak to his brothers in Hebrew and reveals his true identity. What do you think about Joseph? Joseph's change? Do you find that to be believable, uh, moving, or...? I think it's extraordinary, really. Okay. I think he, he, he just... You know, he, he, he has to triumph over something that happened to him that he has very good reason to, to enslave his own brothers and, put, and to use his power to do what he can. But he, he wants to, he wants, not too sure what he wants. I think he, he, does, he does he want them to, to, to recognize who he is? Why don't they recognize who he, who he is? I, I, I have, again, I have a hard time believing that, you know, at 17, when he's in the pit and where he is now in what, his 30s, when he gets, that, that, that they're not going to have some sense of who he is. I think he's is. only about 30, maybe. Yeah, so it's not that long in right. terms of, you know, facial recognition or facial characteristics, unless he's wearing some kind of Egyptian uh, paraphernalia that would make it difficult for them to recognize. Or psychologically, this guy's in Egypt. They think Joseph is dead. He can't possibly be, be alive. Well, I think now we're getting into a question of... This is also a major writing technique, which is, I think, maybe verisimilitude, that mm-hmm. you have right. to, it has to be believable that... Uh, I. Can you can you speak to that at all? Like why why it's a problem when you have these doubts? 
Well, <laughs> you could you get rid of a lot of postmodernism is if you want to get postmodernism modernism if you want to get rid of verisimilitude. I mean, uh, a lot of stories are work because they're they're not believable. You know, you, you kind of have fun with those stories. Right. Um, you know, again, my story about someone who uh, has, you know, attracts all this debris on his body is is sort of not totally, you know, believable, <laughs> but. It's, yeah, maybe okay. Maybe that's not the, quite the right word. But but it has to be believable in whatever context Incredible. you're writing it in, whether it's fantasy or whether it's mm-hmm. metafiction or whether it's postmodernism. You know, it doesn't really matter whatever whatever you're using, or you gravitate towards as a writer. Uh, but uh, I, I think there's, I mean, again, as I pointed out, there might be reasons to believe why he's they would not recognize Joseph because again where of where they are of what they what they believe you know they believe him to be dead and it wouldn't make any sense for this to be Joseph right. but uh, speaking uh, a different language yeah speaking a different language speaking supposedly speaking through an interpreter so um, right. so that's um uh, you know something to think about in terms of the construction of the story but it's more believable in the story that they don't recognize him. And I think that's what the author recognized. And, and, and whoever wrote this story or put these stories together um, in the way that he or she did uh, is, was quite extraordinary. I mean, that person had a novelist's mind. You know, that person had an epic novelist's mind, if, if you consider the whole book of Genesis as a kind of epic. What do you think about uh, Judah's change? Um, I think it has to happen. A lot of this stuff has to happen, by the way, because that, that's, if you believe it historically, which again might not even be true, uh, he's, he's, he's going to be, it's going to, it's going to turn out that, that he, he's going to be the one who gets the, you know, the blessing. Uh, so it has to work out that he changes. Uh, How would you describe his change, Judas? Uh, well, who he becomes, <laughs> the leader, the warrior, uh, the one who, who takes responsibility, who, who admits the responsibility, doesn't give up his two sons. To, to <laughs> I mean, would Jacob kill his own grandchildren? <laughs> right. Well, I'm speaking specifically of the moment where... Who, who would do that? <laughs> well, I'm speaking of the moment where... Um, right. That's a good point. Yeah, and Reuben, you know, doesn't really change, and that's part of the problem why he, he doesn't get the right. firstborn blessing. Well, I'm speaking at the beginning of the Yigash. Um, Joseph says, I'm going to take Benjamin to the dungeon because he stole my cup. Yeah. Which is obviously all just a scheme to test the brothers, which you said I, I find also a very brilliant storytelling scheme technique. And then Judah says, take me instead. Like, I can't not... Benjamin has to go back to Jacob or he'll... So take me instead. And this is a big change from when he was younger, when Judah said he didn't take responsibility, like you said. He was right. Ever so. since the Tamar episode, he he begins to take more and more responsibility. And and uh, Jacob must recognize this and see this. I'm assuming he knows what's going Joseph, on. Joseph, you mean? Yeah, uh, Jacob, uh, his father. Oh, uh, Jacob. Okay. Which is why he ultimately gives him the blessing. And also the way he handles himself in Egypt. I mean, that's the new Judah we see at that, that moment when his half-brother, who's 
can't be as close to him as his blood brothers are, but suddenly he does, he realizes that, um, no, he's my, he's still my blood. He's still my brother. He's, he's my, my father doesn't want this to happen to him. Um, he expressly doesn't want this to happen to him and I have to take responsibility. I have to step in in his place. Uh, I, I think you see that in him. I think you see that in Joseph. I think you see that in Jacob, you know, earlier on. You see that in, I think, all the patriarchal characters here. Um, so as a writer, would you, you were kind of alluding to this earlier, do you look at this, this arc of character development, if we might call it that, as a very, do you see it as a very impressive arc? Do you see it as more elementary do you see it as believable i i see it as as you know right writing in the making in other words the you know we we can go to college and learn writing i mean where did the bible writer learn writing you know think about that where did these storytellers learn to tell stories they didn't go to graduate writing programs or anything like that uh, and neither did Chekhov, and neither did Tolstoy, or any one of those. Kafka. Kafka, or anyone like that. I actually wrote a story, I, I think I might have told you this when we talked a long time ago, that I wrote a story years ago about Kafka going to a college writing program, you know. Oh, cool. In, in, That's uh, in, 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 in uh, Germany, uh, in uh, Czech, uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, Prague? Prague, yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was a kind of a Kafkaesque story, but but you know that the, the writers here were were creating character development. They were creating structure. They were creating things that later novelists uh, and and playwrights like Shakespeare, you know, who who read the Bible. I mean, that's that's what was taught in schools. I mean, you know, the Bible was something that everybody read. All, all great writers read the Bible or knew the Bible. So do you don't see... Do you, I, I'm curious, because this is obviously an ancient book, do you see this these as as sort of writing at its, at its pinnacle or at least very kind of high quality, or is it... Is it like a very primitive type of? Uh, well, it's how all, do you rate it, it? It's all those things. It, yeah. It's primitive in the sense that it's it's developing. It's it's something new. It's um, I mean, storytelling's been around for a long time in terms of myths and things like that. And these are a lot of these Bible stories are built on these myths. But yeah, this is the creation of you know all these things that are that are fictive when you think about it. Um, and especially structure. I mean, by the Bible, the, the parallelism, the doublets in the Bible, those kinds of things, the, the kind of pairings that go on, um, that, that's just extraordinary stuff. That yeah. is, that is, that's kind of pinnacle writing, you know, really okay. when you think about parallelism. it. Parallelism. Yeah, that, that too. And not just the language in terms of parallelism, but just the stories themselves parallel each other in totally. so many can you, ways. Can you explain that a bit more, what, what you mean by parallelism? Well, at least in terms of the Joseph stories, if you remember the first dream of Joseph where the, you know, the, uh, the, the, the sheaves of wheat are bowing down, the 11 <laughs> sheaves of wheat are bowing down. When, when the brothers come to Egypt, they're bowing down to, to right. Joseph. I mean, uh, the dream is, is uh, you know, that, that dream at the time, you know, is what causes the brothers to throw, <laughs> throw him into the pit because right. they're, they're so angry with him and jealous of him. And, and 
uh, or envious really is the word of him and his favoritism, you know, Jacob's favoritism. Uh, but uh, these things get played out in the story in so many different ways. Um, and that's, did the writer think of that? Or was that something that just, again, was unconscious development in writing the stories? Because as I said, sometimes the great thing about writing or the thing I love the most about writing is that I'm always surprised as to what's, what comes out. Yeah. Well, parallelism is really interesting. I mean, that's a great example you just gave, but there's, there's a lot more too in terms of, um, well, just the, the, well, now I'm, now I'm kind of blanking, but, uh, I would say that, okay. <laughs> Obviously you have in the, in the Torah, you have brothers, uh, kind of stories between brothers being paralleled between yeah. you have. Cain and Abel, then you have Abraham and um, Ish, uh, not Ishmael, um, uh, I mean, Isaac and, and yeah. Ishmael, yeah. and uh, Jacob and Esau, you have, right. you have so, all these. So it all is, I, parallelism as I understand it is when you have kind of like uh, separate moments or separate stories that are not necessarily directly connected, but will mirror each other yeah right well you can use that word if you want they kind of they mirror each other or parallel each other i mean parallelism means a lot of other things so it could be a you know not the right word but or the best word uh but you do um i think uh robert alter uses it talks about doublets and things like that and you can you can see that kind of stuff going on in um in the bible and is it intentional? Did it did it sort of come about, and the writer grasped onto that as a as an idea that he could use for telling these other stories and putting them all together into this one big story? Uh, that that that's really I think we're never going to know the answer to that, but that's really worth thinking about. Why is that powerful as a storytelling technique? Uh, yeah, that that's that's a that's a question you have to ask the reader, <laughs> okay. um, and sure. you know what makes the story so appealing, um, and these techniques just over time and the way they've been developed and used, and and here we see them in their foundational way in the Bible, uh, just become uh, you know a source of just great stuff for 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 later writing and and what we might call fictional techniques. In your writing, do you find, do you ever intend to use parallelism or does it happen more naturally or accidentally? Um, it, 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 some, that's what it surprises me sometimes. I mean, when I, when I notice something that uh, connects with something I had stated earlier in a story, uh, that, that just, that's, that to me is like, I know I, I, know I have a successful day as a writer. <laughs> I've, I've really, yeah, I've made that work. So another storytelling technique I have noticed in, in particularly in Joseph's story is tension uh, that you have um, 
basically almost a form of dramatic irony between the brothers and Joseph, where the audience knows something that the characters don't know. Joseph knows, but the brothers don't know. And for me, there's just an amazing amount of tension, especially in this scene. I mean, you have, basically you have the brothers that uh, just tried to kill, they tried to kill their younger brother in the past. And now they're all packed in the same room and their social roles have completely changed. And I think this is one of the thrills of, of good storytelling is when you can create I don't think I don't I don't think that's something that the lay person understands how important that is to to a good story, at least. But I would be curious to hear what you think about that. Well, uh, one thing we might want to do is actually look at that. I mean, actually look at it and read it. I mean, in others, uh, if, if if you're able to do that, uh, and and say, uh, and look what happens during that moment. He he tells them. He, if I'm recalling this now, he he says, "I'm Joseph." But they don't, they're still not convinced that he's Joseph. And then he, he says it again, I think, a second time. Yeah, you're right. And then maybe a third time until it, that, that tension is finally, you know, it builds up to that point of recognition. Uh, he knows them immediately. It takes them, you know, a little bit to, to recognize, could this be true? Could this be Joseph? I mean, isn't he dead? I mean, how is he here? How did he get to this point? That's... <laughs> That's great. That's just extraordinary. I mean, the writer, wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what the writer does. The, the writer has figured out how to solve that problem. ask you about another uh, technique which I find important for storytelling which is flawed characters having a character flaw in some way and I think the Torah has is really I think that's what people one thing they love about the Torah is that the heroes all have sometimes pretty serious flaws yeah. I mean um, even most well they all have their own flaws. I mean, uh, obviously you have uh, Moses uh, strikes the rock, this one moment of, of losing his patience, a very minor flaw. Then you have, um, well, King David had many flaws, King Solomon. And in Genesis, um, well, Jacob choosing having a favorite son is a flaw, I would say, right? Yeah. Oh, it's a big flaw. The, yeah. the, and and that's, that, again, is one of those sort of parallel or common themes, if you want, um, in the Bible, this idea of favoritism. Um, all the, except for Abraham, no. He, right. he does love both his sons, but he's, he's sort of forced to have this yeah. <laughs> pick a favorite and, and that's, you know, listen to your wife kind of thing. Uh, but... Um, yeah, Abraham's sacri his sacrifice of almost the sacrifice of Isaac. Some people would say that's a flaw. Um, yeah, you could see that as a flaw. He, he he's he's kind of probably the best. Uh, best of, yeah, he's he's very um, uh, he, he's the least flawed of the characters, I think, of all the patriarchs, and including Moses. But oh, yeah. he's uh, and then you know Joseph doesn't. Well, maybe you know. What's, what's Moses' flaw for you? 
Um, I think Moses is pretty. Yeah, pretty maybe maybe Moses. Yeah, he he doesn't have flaws. You know, you, you kind of have to. He, he's he's quick to anger. I mean, he 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 wants to. Um, uh, he can be quick to anger, but but he. he I think of, the opposite. He's very. Well, he pulls back. He pulls back from right. his anger. In other words, he he he. That's true. He kind of shows God up there, and, and you know, after the golden calf, and he says, "No, you can't do this." Yeah. Um, but you're right. He does break the tablets. Yeah. And but I does, think that I wouldn't necessarily say that's a flaw. That's more. No, I just say quick to anger. If you can, if you consider yeah. that a flaw, but he's not. Um, right. I think the Bible writers wanted to make the characters less flawed, <laughs> um, but uh, as, as they got into it, you know, later in the Bible, but. Uh, yeah, you have a lot of flawed, flawed characters because they're human. I mean, that's the whole point. These are human characters. They're human beings, you know. We're flawed. We are flawed creatures. I mean, we're not. So the purpose of flaws from a writing perspective is so the characters are more relatable? Well, I think you want them to be human. So, right. you're, you know, nobody really likes a, a perfect character. I mean, how many perfect characters in fiction, you know, are there really? Right. Uh, they're, they're all, in some ways, have things that they're dealing with, problems that they're dealing with. And those problems are sometimes self-created. Sometimes they're, they're kind of forced upon them uh, out of no fault of their own. I think Isaac, in a way, is sort of like that. He's, you know, he's, he is who he is because of what has happened to him. He's, he's been emotionally scarred. Um, and and you can blame Abraham for that, or or you're going to blame God for that, one or the other. Um, and he winds up being this sort of, you know, he's the he's sort of the the least interesting and least talkative of the patriarchs, isn't he? For sure, yeah, yeah. He's not as kind of. Um, I mean, his wife star, kind of has Rebecca kind of dominates power. him in a way, you know. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I've always been interested in like. Um, writing where I would say that the characters are flawed, but they're all likable in some way. Or you yeah, root, they're you not root, unlikable you characters. Root for them. Yeah, yeah, right. I agree. You do. You do root for them. They, they're, they're at heart and essentially very good people, which is why they're chosen to be who they are. Um, and that's another element in the story too. That that these these things are are happening because God is. You know, Joseph says that on many occasions. Right. So this is God, you know, who's done this. God, God, it was a good thing you threw me in the pit because I'm, I, I'm able to save you. <laughs> you know, God made it so that I would be here to save you when you needed to be saved. When, when you didn't save me, when you flawed brothers, you know, all of you who are flawed. Yeah, it was very, you know, very gracious of Joseph to say that. Right. I'm just curious, you know, most of the characters, like we said, are flawed, but also likable in the Torah. What if you were writing about, like, the Pharaoh, who's obviously a villainous character, or at least depicted that way? I mean, is, does the likability just happen naturally, or, like, how important is it for the characters to be likable? Well, you're, I mean, depending on the kind of story you're writing, you're going to have people who are 
bad and you're going to have people who are likable and people who are good i again it depends on it depends on the story itself if there's a need for a villain in a character then that villain is going to be you know who that that villain is who that person is and you can you can make likable villains i mean you know look at look at ripley the ripley novels by uh, patricia heistmith <laughs> you know there are um uh, Donald Westlake's, uh, he wrote as Richard Stark, actually, he's a mystery writer, wrote a character named Parker, and he was only known as Parker, and he's a pretty bad guy. I mean, he's a really bad guy. But you, you love Parker every minute you're reading those, those novels, you know? So it depends on what you want to do with that character. And um, what is it that you, because I'm thinking, you know, if you could write the Pharaoh story from the perspective of the Pharaoh, and now Moses is just this renegade yeah uh disrespectful and the pharaoh is like you know the beleaguered ruler exactly and that so and, and you can and you can write that story that's a story to be written that's that's a prompt and a problem for a writer to figure out if so if a writer wants to write that story that becomes the problem how do i how do i make this character who's a villain in this story likable in in this story and i'm sure that's been done in other books and stuff do you have to work to make the character likable? I remember, or? I mean, okay. Othello thinks Iago is likable. You know, we know. He doesn't know, but we know, of course. Same yeah. thing in many stories and many plays. But um, from his perspective, Iago is just fine until the very last minute of the play. Right. And maybe there are people out there that like Iago. Probably not many. Well, you, you, you like him as a character in a play who's an unlikable villain. And you love, and actors love portraying him for that reason. And Shakespeare must have loved writing that that character um, when he wrote the when he wrote you know Othello. Uh, I mean, Mickey Sabbath is a pretty crappy character, I think, in the Roth novel Sabbath Theater. But Roth said he that. Uh, this was a question actually answered in an interview by his biographer that I asked him. Uh, said that Mickey Sabbath was his the favorite character he ever wrote. He just loved writing Mickey Sabbath really? this character. <laughs> but as a writer, do you have to like sit there? I mean, most writers, I I think they just write. They don't need to. They don't plan it like okay, I want him to be flawed, but also likable, and this will make him flawed. This will make him likable. Like it's kind of just they just write and yeah, I don't, it, I don't right. think you know. So I, again, writers have different techniques for the, for how they write stories, and sometimes they plot these things out. They haven't they have an idea of a villain in mind. You know, if you're writing those kinds of novels, those kind of James Patterson novels, or you know whatever, uh, which I really don't read. I mean, I'd rather <laughs> watch the movies. Right, but. Um, but yeah, I think they, they plot those things out. I think they think of those some of those things in advance. But um, if we're talking about literary writers, which I think we are in a sense, but again, all writers are writers no matter what they write. Um, I'm pretty sure James Patterson is often very surprised when he writes a character, you know, and the character says something or does something that he didn't think the character was going to say. I think every writer has that kind of experience. Mm. I, I, you know, why did my character say that? You know, how, how did he, how did those words come out of his mouth? Because I didn't think about it before I put it down on paper. I created this character and the character's talking now and then all this stuff's coming out.
realizing now that um, all of these questions, we could also apply them to your area of ex expertise, which is sports writing, because I think sports is also stories, right? I mean, that's sort of why, yeah. and sports involves luck. It involves its own element of American dream. Yes, yeah, the theme of one of my books, in, in, yeah. in, which was about baseball writing in America and the writers who wrote about baseball and not just, and, and these were nonfiction writers not just fiction writers but they created the the stories that fiction writers ultimately you know use um, every time there's a there's a baseball game it's telling the story this is sort of the whole postmodern idea that a baseball game or a football game is also a text you know because uh, you have characters you have right. uh, tension you you have flaws you know parallelism errors right uh you have in baseball you have this sort of parallelism going on nine players here and nine players there and they're they're kind of and i think luck is what really and luck plays a big part and drives terms. people yeah. crazy in terms of sports when the ball kind of rolls in and rolls out of the basket but that's seems so cruel and also so fortuitous right and but people still keep coming back. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and you have heartbreak and you have triumph and victory. <laughs> you know, it is you very all emotional drama. Oh, it is. It's just it's drama and comedy too. You have all that built into uh, into sports, um, and and a lot of you know sort of existential ideas such as you know the Woody Allen movie Match Point, the idea that right. you know, the tennis ball hits the net, the net court shot, it could either right. go over or fall on your side and fader free will yeah, fader free will and um, um i'm also just thinking about the american dream in sports i think i mean this is just conjecture but i think that if you see a team or an athlete where you can sense that maybe they were an underdog but through their own hard work i think it's natural to connect with these oh yeah when the when the team the team that should have lost beats the team that should have won. That's always because of their industriousness, or yeah, 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 and and, and a little bit of luck too. <laughs> it's always always there, but uh, and bad luck for the other side, which sometimes happens. Uh, it's a, it's all it's a human drama, a human comedy. It's it's all played out, and the Bible plays those those elements out. I think just brilliantly, really, when you think about it. Great. Well, uh, I think. I think we'll uh, we will uh, close the book uh, for now, right? And, and, and uh, you never really close the book, by the way. These story, yeah. you know, this this can talking about this just goes on and on and oh, on, which is why we read these parshas every year at the same time, you know, in the Hebrew calendar, uh, and and go over it all over again. Exactly, uh, that's the never-ending never-ending, ever-enfolding wisdom of, of storytelling us to, uh, to reference Walter Benjamin. Yeah. All right, thank you so much for coming. Thanks. I'm so grateful for it. been a pleasure. I love your show. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, great. And until next time.
Walter Benjamin once wrote that, in every great storyteller, there lives a Scheherazade. A great story always leaves open the door to the next story. Or, as Benjamin put it, all stories conclude with the question of, what happens next? The more I watch professional sports, the more I realize how uncanny is the overlap between the athletic and the literary. The superficial view of sports is that it is just people, usually men, in uniforms, jumping up and down to get a ball in a hole of some sort, or past some arbitrary line. Indeed, sports cannot help but be these things, but it is also a whole lot more. The way in which sports are filmed betrays this. The video camera often focuses less on the game itself than on the drama, that is, on the story which surrounds it. The camera zooms in on facial expressions, captures thrill and agony, exposes insecurities and vices. All of the characteristics of good storytelling are inevitably found all over Bereshit, particularly within the Joseph story. Sports, moreover, tend to have these traits naturally and effortlessly. Tension, character flaws, character development, thickening plots, redemption, inconsolable tragedy, and perhaps most critically, conclusions which always end with the Scheherazadean question of what happens next. Professor Richard Oredenker's expertise lies in the intersection between sports and writing. It should, therefore, not be at all surprising how he was able to elucidate for us the literary foundations of the story of Joseph and his brothers. The first Olympic Games were allegedly held in ancient Greece in 776 BCE. Is it any wonder, then, that Homer wrote the Iliad in, more or less, the exact same year?